Hello and welcome to the second episode of Skip Intro, your one-stop podcast for Flash platform news and events. I hope you've all had great holidays. This episode is in a little later than expected, but that of course gives us a lot more to talk about. As promised, we'll be talking about issues surrounding Flash and DRM, Flex versus ActionScript 3, and how designers fit into a code environment. So, what else is on today's show? I'll have another feature of the week. We'll have some product reviews to run through, and I've got a few Podsafe music tracks for you to enjoy. Also, some discount codes to mention throughout the show, so stay tuned for that. But first, the news. You can't escape the iPhone. Announced at Steve Jobs' keynote earlier in January during Macworld, this long-awaited device has finally been shown to the public. Speculation is on on whether it will support Flash in any way. Although the phone supposedly runs on Mac OS X, it's likely a slimmed-down version, and the policy we're hearing right now is that third-party developers will not be granted access to develop on it. So, after the initial hype, my enthusiasm has died down just a little. The one thing that sells it for me is this multi-touch gesture system, which I think was a bit of a, a rip-off. In actual fact, I don't think there's any way I'll buy myself a SIM-locked phone. It seems less of an issue to consumers over in the US, but I doubt many people would be happy about being locked down with one particular network provider over here in Europe. We might even see some legal back and forth around this issue. Now, even if the iPhone did work on other networks, it'll likely mean not having this visual voicemail feature, which is another letdown. In short, it's a great device, though quite a few concerns and the battery life won't even last you during the office hours if you plan to listen to some audio or watch some video during your commute. Okay, Adobe Photoshop Lightroom is available for pre-order. If you don't know the product, it's been released as a beta on labs.adobe.com for quite a while now. It's a wonderful product aimed at photo professionals. It gives you non-destructive editing in a very clean and intuitive interface and has solid support for camera raw. Introduction pricing is 199 US dollar or some 210 euro if you order before April 30th. The product itself will ship mid-February. Even more exciting news, Flash Player 9 for Linux is finally available. Adobe often gets a lot of flack for Linux support, particularly for things like the Flash platform tools and Photoshop. I do think they're making a great effort in this field, and whatever gets said Linux at the moment is not your run-of-the-mill operating system for print and web professionals. Nonetheless, it's a market they should target, and I believe they're actively doing so. One thing I do hope is that they'll now be able to sync release dates a bit better between the different operating systems going forward. So we might see the Flash player uh, released on PC, Mac and Linux at the same time. In any case, it's great news for Flex 2 development on Linux. There even appears to be someone over in Asia that has ported Flex Builder 2.01 over to Linux. I won't comment on any legalities here, but it's sure cool to see. So I'll link to that in the show notes. 
Talking about this FlexBuilder 2.01 update, that's another new release Adobe has out. One of the major things is that now it's a final release for Mac. It runs beautifully. It also includes new features like runtime CSS before your CSS was embedded inside your Flex project. Uh, a module feature, and it's also ready to do Apollo development on which I hope will be in a public beta in the next few weeks or months. Now, a little controversy in the community. Scott Barnes, whom you might know from mossyblog.com, a quite active blogger in his day, and someone I've always seen as a huge flex evangelist, has joined the dark side. Now, all kidding aside, he's accepted a job at Microsoft as a developer evangelist so all the best to him but all of a sudden it seems he's taken a 180 degree turn on his views regarding flex and he's actively been commenting about that on Ted Patrick's and other community blogs creating a bit of animosity whether or not this is a coincidence I leave up to you to decide but what is interesting to see is that blogging has become a new tool in the marketing campaign for many companies and it's increasingly important to know someone's background when reading comments or blog posts. I for one always knew Scott as a very knowledgeable proponent of Flex and if I hadn't read about his new position at Microsoft I'd probably have read his comments in a different light. Now in the interest of full disclosure, I'll just talk a bit about myself here. I'm not a full-time Adobe employee. <laughs> if they want me as an evangelist, they can always get in touch. Be happy to oblige. I do present the occasional seminar for, for them and I'm involved in the local Adobe user group. Oh, and I run both Mac and PC at the moment. I'm a bit biased towards Mac. And I didn't get an Acer Ferrari notebook from Microsoft. Of course, it might just be because Bill doesn't have my new address yet. I'll have to see. Some more good news. One of my favorite bloggers, Ryan Stewart of DigitalBackCountry.com, uh, the voice of reason on the Universal Desktop and Apollo, along with Jeff Hauser, have started up the Flex Show podcast. As you can guess, it's all about Flex and an absolutely wonderful resource on Flex 2 development and workflows. They've been very active so far and already have three episodes out in as many weeks. So definitely something to put on your playlist. In the meanwhile, Eric Dolecki is also reviving his podcast and has a blog post up asking you to chime in. And Sean Corfield, a former Macromedia called Fusion Guru, has recently announced he'll start a podcast as well. So, that's all the news for this episode. If you have some other news worth mentioning, drop me an email at skipintro at peterelst.com. Leave a message via Google Talk using skipintroshow at gmail.com or on the UK-based Skype voicemail number plus four four two zero eight one two three eight seven three eight. The feature of the week. My feature for this week is the outline view in FlexBuilder. If you've never used it, you should definitely check it out. You can open it up via Window, Show View, Outline. If you're in a Flex project, it defaults to a tree structure view 
of the components used in your currently opened file. But you'll notice that there's a little green circle with the letter C there. That allows you to jump to what is called class view. In class view, you'll see a list of all your methods and properties and an icon indicating whether it's public, private or internal. There's also a button to toggle sorting between ascending and descending and you can even choose to show or hide static and private class members to make the list a little more readable. What I find so useful about this feature is that you can just click any property or method in that list and it'll jump to where it was first instantiated in your code. That's very handy indeed. Now, another little power feature, if you switch between class and MXML view in that outline panel, it'll highlight the component your method or property is associated with. One little letdown is that when you're in design view in FlexBuilder, you can't switch the outline panel to class view. But for most intents and purposes, that's not a huge issue. Time for some pot save music. One of my favorite dance tracks by Moloko. Sing it back. Enjoy.
Okay, now for the reviews of this week. Reviews this week will be mostly related to flashlight development. I recently got myself a Nokia N70, unlocked of course, which I am very pleased about. It's a very affordable phone with just about all the trimmings except for Wi-Fi and it supports the new Flashlight 2.1 player, which was the main thing for me. So I've been working on a couple of cool little apps, which I'll hopefully share with you all in the not too distant future. And I love the fact that I can now use AS2 syntax rather than having to travel back in time and recollect the old tell target and set of variable functions. One issue with Flashlight 2.1 is that it does not seem to have an SWF recognizer, meaning that you just can't put an SWF file anywhere on your phone and expect it to launch the uh, flashlight player. Instead, you'll have to open up the flashlight player itself and browse to your file to open it. Now, I'm just a newbie when it comes to flashlight development, so if anyone knows how you can develop a flashlight app that self-launches on a Symbian Series 60 phone, I'd be very interested. Oh, Pete from Friends of Ed was kind enough to hook me up with a review copy of Flash Applications for Mobile Devices, a book by Richard Leggett, Weyer de Boer and Scott Janosek. There aren't many books on the topic that I know of, definitely not covering Flashlight 2.1. Interesting to note is that this is a hardcover book, coming in at 536 pages. The authors do a good job at first giving you an introduction as to the constraints you have to deal with in mobile application development and offer practical solutions to overcoming those. You'll learn how to do screensavers, wallpapers and actual applications communicating over HTTP. Of course, your phone might not support all of these features, but it gives you a good overview of what is available and what you can do with Flash content on different handsets. I really love the book. You'll be happy to have this one in your possession if you're at all interested in Flash for mobile devices. It's a market that no doubt will grow in the coming years and the guys have really got me excited about the opportunities ahead. Something else you might want to consider when you start doing actual Flashlight 2.1 development is a new training title by Total Training. Dale Rankin, a uh, renowned expert on flash development for mobile devices, guides you through all the technical details of working with Flashlight. You get five hours of in-depth training, including working with the Flash 8 mobile emulator, working with key events, doing game development and XML and XML socket communication. It's a top-notch training DVD that takes the theory from this Friends of Ed book into practice. I was particularly impressed with the example of connecting to a Jabber server from a flashlight app that gets covered in the section on XML sockets. It's well worth the investment. In fact, after talking to Steve Johnson over at Total Training, I got a code that gives you guys a 15% discount. So on checkout, if you use the code SAVE15UG, you'll get a 15% discount on this title. Be sure to do that. Now, for something different, I've recently been having quite a few problems with my virtual private server I've got hosted over in the US, and uh, I was looking for some more reliable hosting, particularly for uh, some subversion repositories I've got up for projects, and after looking around, I came across DreamHost, which came highly recommended, and had all the features you could wish for in a shared hosting environment.
including pre-installed subversion. The basic package includes 185 GB of disk space and 1.8 terabyte of bandwidth a month. So that's more than enough for me and it comes in at just 120 US dollars for a year including a, a free domain registration. Now I got a coupon for 90 dollars and as a client I made one for you as well. If you want this basic package it'll cost you under 30 US dollars for 185 gigabyte of subversion space. Now if you compare that to something like CVS Dude you'll come out 500% cheaper and from my experience it's just as reliable if not more than these services. So if you're interested you can use the following discount code skip intro one word you'll get a 90 US dollar discount so it'll cost you under 30 US dollars and on that I get a seven dollar commission which will go to paying my hosting bill. Enough reviews for this episode, let's look at some upcoming events. February 14th, so here locally, Ben Forte is coming to Brussels on Valentine's Day to talk about Scorpio, also known as Cold Fusion 8, at the Sofitel Airport Hotel. The event is free of charge, but you'll need to register. Check out the show notes on my blog for the URL. March 5th to 7th is 360 Flex in San Jose which unfortunately now has sold out. So if you haven't got your ticket yet, you're out of luck for this edition. March 22nd and 23rd is WebDU in Sydney. I was originally scheduled to speak at this event, but I unfortunately can't make it. I really hope I'll be there next year. I'm sure it'll be a great event this year looking at the lineup. So March 22nd and 23rd at the Hilton in Sydney. Then April 21st to 24th in Toronto, Canada is FITC, Flash in the Can 2007. I'll be there this year, although I won't be speaking. It's one of the first conferences in years um, I'll be attending but not speaking at, so that'll make a good change. If you're there, please drop me a line and we'll meet up. May 2007, stay tuned for that. We've got a great event over in Belgium called Multimania, the biggest multimedia event. This year round it's even bigger and better, so more on that later on. Time for some music again. I wouldn't have thought this was my cup of tea, but it sure rocks. Transcendence, my brother's symphonic metal band, has a demo CD out, and this is the title track. For Hope is Still There, it's licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivative license.
got me in the mood to talk about Flash and DRM. Let me just summarize my thoughts on digital rights management. It's evil. First of all, there currently is no such thing as managing your digital rights. What it does is lock down and constrain your usage of legally purchased copyrighted works. The traditional example is Apple iTunes, which in fact is a quite lenient form of DRM. It uses a scheme called Fairplay, which is only supported by the iPod, so you're out of luck with any other player. If you buy music from their iTunes music store, you can transfer that song to an unlimited amount of iPods registered to your system. Now, the reason why this is considered very lenient is that you can burn purchased songs to a CD from iTunes, which removes any DRM and you can subsequently rip the tracks and move them to any audio device. So it's not enforced in a very strict way. It's a totally different situation for the Zoom, Microsoft's iPod rival. Their device supports Wi-Fi. Now, that's not for accessing the internet or any online music store, but it's for squirting music, don't ask. You squirt music to another Zoom device and what happens when you squirt a song is that the device adds DRM which limits the playback of that song to three days or three plays, whatever comes first. Now that's not too bad you'd say, if not for one thing. The Zoom adds DRM to any audio file you share, even those that are not copyrighted. So. You might want to share this podcast with a friend via the Zoom. It's limited to three days or three plays. Now, I'm sure you'll be outraged to hear that because you'll definitely want to listen to this podcast more than three times. These are just some very basic examples of DRM in your daily life. The situation gets much worse. When you start looking at HD video and the new formats coming out like Blu-ray and HD DVD, The devices to play these back are required to implement very strict decryption routines, making them expensive to make and the user experience for the end user is absolutely terrible because the startup time for these devices is significantly increased by all the check routines that need to happen. To make things worse, these DRM schemes have reportedly all been hacked, so the honest user is left out in the cold. is it with the industry that they are prepared to go to these lengths of technological utopia while not looking at the real cause for what I believe is the problem, a flawed distribution model. You can see from online music sales such as on iTunes, which has this less radical DRM route, that people do still buy music. Compare that to the downfall in actual CD sales and you're onto something. Balanced pricing and a fair usage policy is the key here. All that money spent on technology that bugs the honest user, to the point of installing rootkits, as with the Sony BMG scandal, needs to be recuperated somehow, and guess what happens? The music and film industry get the online distributors as far as for them to pay a fee for each sale for the possible illegal copying of their copyrighted works.
They lobby with governments to get legislation in place for you to pay them when buying blank CDs because they'll be used by you to, of course, illegally copy audio onto. You, the end user, get screwed by the system and kicked repeatedly when doing absolutely nothing wrong. DRM has become a self-serving economy driven by fear and gullibility and no company can do without. I'm not saying that there are no situations where digital rights need to be enforced. But the situation as it stands right now is out of control. How this applies to Flash is that at some point in time, in the not too distant future, we'll see this creeping into the Flash player. With video as the major source of Flash content distribution on the web, the only way for it to really break through in the enterprise and video distribution market is by some form of DRM. Flash is installed on such a wide range of devices, from PCs to mobile, to game consoles, to household appliances and even cars. So this is a source of revenue Adobe will not ignore. Recently they announced a partnership with VeriSign and they're working together on things like a point-to-point -point distribution solution based on VeriSign's Contiki technology. Now, that partnership isn't necessarily a bad thing. I for one would like to see the ability to digitally sign NSWF and securely streaming video content could benefit many, but we need to be very careful about maintaining the Flash player integrity and don't have it fall into the trap of becoming a DRM client to serve the needs of the music and video industry. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this evolution and how Adobe should take on the challenge. I don't have any definitive answers either. There is some light at the end of the tunnel, however. EMI is considering to remove DRM from its CDs because it's not worth the cost to them. And they say they haven't produced any CDs with DRM protection in the last few months. Along with Norway, France and Germany are now calling on Apple to open up its iTunes format to other music players. This is now a significant chunk of the European market and with the involvement of the, of the European Commission now, it might even become reality. Whether or not Apple can afford to miss out on the European online music sales market is an unanswered question at this moment. I expect we'll see the same challenge with the iPhone when it comes out over here as a SIM-locked device. Now, for some more light conversation. There has been a lot of talk about flex in the community these days and I followed along with a number of threads in forums where people talk about the differences between AS3 and Flex projects. The confusion mainly arises around the use of Flex Builder. If you do pure AS3 projects in Flex Builder, it's actually not a Flex application. Flex applications use the Flex framework and a minimum of MXML. Keith Peters recently had a great blog post about this very issue and I too have found it annoying that people seem to mix and match the terminology while the two are clearly different if not only in file size because of the framework overhead. The other thing I wanted to briefly mention in today's show was the role of designers in a code environment. A few months back we got into a workflow between graphic designers and the development team on a pretty huge project I'm working on at the moment and it really got me excited. Rather than just using external graphical assets and uh, meta embed tags in AS3 to get those embedded in, 
The design team started working with a single FLA where they created movie clips and assigned it linkage IDs. And we used CSS to embed those linkage IDs and skin our application. Now we just need that single SWF file for skinning and updating the entire project. So it's a very easy way to work. I think it's common practice nowadays in most businesses doing Flex development, but it really hit home to me how well the tools integrate these days. Now every person in the team can work with the tools they're comfortable with, be it Flash or Eclipse, and without any hassle you bring it all together and you've got yourself a working skinned application. That's about it for this episode of Skip Intro. I hope you've enjoyed the show. You can find all links mentioned in this podcast on the show notes on my personal blog, peterals.com. As always, please get in touch with your feedback, questions or any rants and raves on anything related to the Flash platform or multimedia in general. The contact details for the show are by email skipintro at peterals.com you can leave a message via Google Talk Skip Intro Show at gmail.com or leave a voicemail message on the Skype number based in the UK plus four four two zero eight one two three eight seven three eight. Next episode I'll talk some more about Apollo and the future of 3D in Flash, which you're no doubt hearing a lot of buzz about in the community. Take care everyone and keep on flashing. <laughs> This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 2.5 license.